I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is an Australian career diplomat with over 25 years' experience, Penny Williams, who is currently the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Her regional portfolio includes the Americas, Europe, Pacific, South and West Asia, and the Middle East and Africa divisions, pretty much the whole (laughs) world. She has also represented Australia in Syria and Chile and was Australia's High Commissioner to Malaysia from 2007 to 2010. Additionally, she was Australia's inaugural Global Ambassador for Women and Girls. On the academic side, she holds a Bachelor of Arts in Asian Studies and a Master of Applied Anthropology and Participatory Development from the Australian National University. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be able to join you this morning. And... The reason that you're in South Africa in the main has been you've been attending the Indian Ocean Rim Association's 17th Council of Ministers in Durban under the theme of uniting the peoples of Africa, Asia, Australia and the Middle East through enhanced cooperation for peace, stability and sustainability and sustainable development. And I noticed there were several priority divisions, but the main focus was really on maritime disaster management. And I noticed there was also a gender empowerment component. Can you share with us a few of the highlights and if the event met your expectations? Sure. The Indian Ocean Rim Association actually is a very unique body. Um, It's been uh, in existence for 20 years and really pulls together the countries of the Indian Ocean Rim um, who come together to really progress the security, stability and economic prosperity of the region. It's very practically focused. Often we attend as diplomats international meetings where we're talking of sort of in, in very grand schemes. And the interesting thing about the Indian Ocean Rim Association, IORA, it's very practically focused. So it's focused on um, the blue economy, what the Indian Ocean is able to deliver to us in terms of jobs, prosperity for people, sustainable development. But very importantly, it has as a cross-cutting issue women's economic empowerment. And that's quite interesting in a, globe, in a, in a regional organisation that, that it actually has projects that focus on women's economic empowerment around the region. So quite, some of them small, some of them medium-sized, that are quite practical. Some of them we've been involved in delivering projects um, together with South Africa that is about getting women ready for business, getting small businesses that are led by women involved in in exporting. So it's quite tangible. And I, I I didn't know quite what I expected when I attended. It was lovely. It was in Durban, so a great Indian Ocean city. And I flew in from Perth, another great Indian Ocean city. But I really did have a sense of um, a very sort of uh, cooperative approach to doing pragmatic, practical things and kind of rolling sleeves up. And as all the delegation leaders, and I was representing our minister, to a person, they uh, talked about women's economic empowerment. To me, it was really a, a real sign that it was embedded in the work of the association. It's quite interesting. Um, the ministers at the table, obviously South Africa's in the chair, so we had a, had the woman foreign minister. Our foreign minister has just left the troika of the three uh, the three ministers, a woman, um, and uh, Indonesia is a member of the troika. 
a woman foreign minister, and the UAE just uh, took our place and was represented by a woman minister. So quite a dynamic um, organisation to be chaired by three women. And uh, the organisation um, agreed yesterday unanimous, unanimously on a new Secretary General, uh, Dr. Ambassador Dr. Nokwe, a woman from South Africa, so the first woman Secretary General. So it's quite a dynamic organisation. Quite, it's member driven, but also with a, um, a real commitment to women's economic empowerment and the involvement of women's lead, women leaders. And I think with that involvement of women's leaders, you having that top down absolutely. Approach. And what I find interesting when you were talking about the fact that it's very practical and very yes. tangible, often when I've attended conferences, it, not that it's, it's superficial, but everyone's talking about a c- component, exactly. but it's a level of talking. Can you tell us some of the practical so aspects? It, so as I was saying, so we've just finished doing some symposium and some workshops here in South Africa, and we've done some in uh, Indonesia as well, about creating toolboxes for, for women exporters. Australia for our part is hosting a symposium early next year of experts on uh, blue carbon and what that means for the Indian Ocean. We were really lucky also to visit, um, to tour the South um, African polar vessel, which was setting off today, in fact, to do with young scientists, men and women, from from the region actually to travel north, which is unusual. It normally travels south, yes. um, travel to do scientific research around the Indian Ocean. So it's really quite sort of practically focused work, um, which I think it makes it uh, immediate and relevant to not just countries but to the people. And I think that was the message that the uh, South African chair was really ma- making to us all. We need to make this relevant to people. Um, this is not just about talking. And when it's relevant, people feel involved. Exactly. They can see and recognise that things are actually happening exactly. for their benefit. And I think also that you know, so, so often we talk... Uh, when we talk at a sort of international level, we, you know, we're concerned with things that might go wrong or security issues. But this is also very practical about prosperity of the region, about lifting the region, about creating jobs and, as I said, women's economic mm-hmm. empowerment. Staying on the theme of women, from 2011 to 2013, you were Australia's global ambassador for women and girls. And I noted that part of your responsibilities included promoting Australian government policies and activities, particularly regarding gender equality, as well as social, political and economic empowerment of women and girls in the Indo-Pacific region. Could you share with us a few of the priorities that you had in that role? So it was quite an innovative decision by the then government, and I should say it's been a bipartisan approach, so as the government changed, it's also um, been supported to actually establish a position that was really around advocacy of gender equality, and not a position that would spend time in the halls of the UN in Geneva or New York, but really a boots on the ground, actually engaging with women's organisations, talking about the importance of uh, 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 gender equality, Um, talking about what we're able to do and investigating what we're able to do in our aid program um, globally, but particularly focus in our region. I should say that it was never envisaged as Australia has all the answers. And that's not how the conversation was ever based. The conversation was always around this is a shared problem um, and we need to come up with shared solutions that are context appropriate and how do we actually get there. So um, I never felt that I was in kind of going into the Pacific saying, OK, let me tell you a thing about, you know, how you should do it. Because Australia, you know, we have a gender pay gap of around 15%. One woman a week at least is killed by an intimate partner. So we have real issues around gender-based violence. We have issues in terms of increasing the women's representation in, in, in leadership positions 
So it really was quite sort of an innovative way to engage across not just our development assistance program, but also within foreign policy. You know, ensuring that when we have conversations, that we're not just talking to men. Ensuring that when we invite special visitors to Australia, we're not just inviting inviting men. Actually, trying to rethink. So that was a cultural change within our own organisation as well. Um, so, as I said, very particular focus on on the Pacific, our near neighbourhood, the Pacific Island countries that have. Um, uh, some real challenges in relation to gender equality, but very much in the sense of partnership, a very dynamic position, um, very advocacy-focused. I'd say, unfortunately, the gender-based violence, the women in leadership, are are certainly concerns that we experience from an African perspective. Uh, And in South Africa, recently, there's been a whole spate of really horrendous violence against women. So these are, for me, global issues that need to have global solutions. Exactly. And in fact, having a a position like that, and not just by themselves, with a whole lot of other support, I suppose, having the conversation is really part of the first step and actually opening it up and having conversation with political leaders about these issues and address and, and looking at how you might the different ways our different experience and what we the sorts of tools that we've been able to use what's worked what hasn't worked um, I think is part of that global conversation for us certainly in the last uh, in the last few years I really do think it's been lifted to a sense that this is a national conversation we've got a problem and what are we going to do about it and part of that has also involved including into the Pacific men standing up against violence against women and there's some campaigns the white ribbon campaigns particularly prominent in Australia but in different different countries in different environments different appropriate culturally appropriate ways of whether it's in some countries in the Pacific tribal leaders really stepping up whether it's the police uniforms really matter in Australia Australia, we've had issues in relation to our defence forces and violence um, and harassment, and so our former chief of defence force was very tough. If if you think that you're going to treat women like this, then you're you're out. Some of that goes to capability. I mean, quite frankly, we need women in our defence forces, but, but some of that's just about doing mm. the right thing and, and human rights. So I do think we've got a long way to go in Australia. Um, but I think we're having that conversation and I'm really pleased that we're also able to have it within our own region and, glo- and globally. We've spoken about some of the challenges and looking at some of the opportunities and the spaces where you've managed to start getting some, some progress. Looking towards to the future, and this is speaking on a general level, not just in, in the role that you occupied then, what do you think we still need to do to benefit women the most in the future? So I think education, 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 um, that's always going to be the thing that starts to change attitudes and feel that people can make the step up. But And that's not just about education for girls, that's also about education for boys and men about respectful behaviour and you need to start that really early on. So I think education is the key and I think we know that across the world in terms of economic empowerment of everyone that education is the key but that needs to be layered with other things. And I think that often in the past we've thought that the answer, like, there must be kind of an answer. There is no one answer. Silver bullet. Silver bullet. (laughs) So I think the Pacific Women Shaping Pacific Development actually went to that. After many years of working on these issues, we actually need to deal with how we what we do in terms of 
uh, say we take violence, what do we do in terms of legislation? And then implementation, training of police, training of support workers. What do we do in terms of safe houses? But then also what do we do in terms of education, community outreach? And that's just on violence. And then you overlay that with how do you create safe places for women to work? So that's got an economic empowerment angle. So that everything links together. And in fact, in our development assistance program, we've got a target of 70% of all of our investments have to have a gender equality uh, piece to them. And 50% have to have a significant part, significant part devoted to gender equality because we've realised that you can't just separate these, separate these things out. I know it would be so much easier if we could say this is if just press this one thing or if we just if it was just about schooling or and schooling I mean when we look at look at schooling I mean uh, and I think this is the African experience broadly too it's not just about the curriculum and getting kids to turn up to school it's about toilets for girls it's about those well, sorts of things yeah exactly protection. exactly yeah so um, there is a, a, a piece of work that's there that brings all of those things together Exciting, and there's still definitely a lot exactly. of work to move things ahead. You mentioned earlier that there was a lack of a political women's representation in terms of political leadership within the Pacific region. And I think that having female leadership is really, really important to demonstrate not only the capabilities of women, and obviously we want to have women in positions who are competent and capable, but also to benefit younger generations to look at people as role models and know that this is possible. But there's been very few female leaders within the political space. If I look at the, the African continent at the moment, we don't really have anyone left. But earlier we had Ellen Johnson Sirleaf from Liberia, Joyce Bunder, and I noted that Australia had a female prime minister with Julia, is it Gillard? Gillard. Gillard, yeah. Julia Gillard. What's your opinion of female leadership? in the political space? So I think, like you, I mean, I think it's incredibly important and it's important for all the reasons that you said, but I guess I would always think that when we're thinking about it in political leadership or any kind of leadership, unless we're drawing on all the talent that it's available to us, then we're really not benefiting people and um, as the world becomes more challenging and more complex we just can't afford not to draw on the skills and the different perspectives that a diverse leadership brings to any country or any kind of political entity so for me it's critical but the same I guess it's the same point we go back to the same thing it's pretty hard to get political leadership that's sustained that's not just a one-off unless you deal with some of those broader issues around inequality and I don't want to keep using the Pacific example but it is one well, where, they ch- where, they, where but the challenge there is when you've got off a low base how, how do you do it do you have temporary and special measures do you look at things like quotas do you look at special electorates do you or do you focus on um, uh, uh, local elections rather than at the national level. And once again, I think it's probably a combination all, of all of those um, and tr- a bit sort of tr- trying, um, uh, c- uh, training for candidates, mm. political parties having targets. In Australia, Our politi- the two major political parties have targets for women MPs and I think that's quite and important. And what sort of ratios are those? I think that was 50-50 over a period of time and I can't quite remember what the what the span is over, over the time but I think targets, people always get panicked about the notion of quotas but um, targets 
in fact, we even in our own ministry have have targets in terms of our, our women's leadership within the organisation. So I do think it's critical. I don't think there's a, a, an immediate direct path there. Um, Papua New Guinea has just had its national elections and it uh, returned no women. Um, it had had three women parliament. It has no women in at all elected. That's a challenge. It's cultural. But it's not all culture. It's uh, about training, but it's not only training. There's a whole lot of issues that come together in that that we need we need to deal with. Yes, well, there's that, always yeah. significant complexities, and exactly. you've really highlighted the importance of having integration and multi-layering. Exactly. exactly. Political leadership's one aspect, and. I mean, I look at Parliament representation in South Africa, and I think women do really well. We're looking at approximately 42%. Uh, Rwanda leads yes, the way, exactly. 64%. <laughs> so, in effect, they're almost the other way, and they probably need to have um, more men contributing. But one area that's really puzzled me has been in terms of female representation in the business yeah. world. And at at higher levels, uh, globally, I think the estimates range between sort of 22 to 25 percent of women in executive roles. Here on the JSC, there's less than 3.6 percent of South African listed companies that have female CEOs. Have you got any thoughts in terms of what the issues are? Uh, how yeah, can we get yeah. more women involved? I think there's similar issues. Um, I should just say in terms of our case, in, in Australia at the federal level, we have 29% of our f- parliaments, parliamentarians in the House of Representatives are women, so there's a long way to go as well there. But in business, um, we are the, it's behind. It's a, a something that c- companies are putting a lot of effort into, but uh, one statistic that I like to quote is that in our top 200 uh, ASX listed companies there are more men called John than there are women in CEO positions or chairs of boards. Not only that, there's more men called Peter who are and there's more men called David so <laughs> there's 32 so John, Peter yeah, and David. So there's 32 Johns, there's 32 uh, Peters and I think there's what 20 does that say about David. diversity? <laughs> <laughs> and there's 19 women so, uh, so we've got a long way to go and I think that companies are really have had their attention focused on it. We have a fabulous former sex discrimination commissioner, Elizabeth Broderick, who started something called Male Champions of Change that really was to get the top end of town business focused on this issue. And she's really driven them and she's um, so that you actually have these male leaders who are standing up who actually need almost in competition with each other. I, th- I think she realised that that was something that you could actually get leverage. male leverage <laughs> male business leaders would like a bit of competition. So she's really driven that and they are are incredibly active in terms of the things that, that they're doing to increase the number of women. And we're doing that within the public sector as well. While the numbers are not as uh, not as stark, we still have similar. We have issues in terms of the number of women at senior levels, and I think in our ministry, but also in business, people realise that that's a combination. There isn't once again no driver. Some of it's about caring responsibilities. Some of it's about women feeling lack of confidence. Some of it's about not putting their hand up, waiting to be tapped. Some of it's cultural expectations some of its presenteeism some of the some of it's not about having flexible uh, working um, arrangements some of it's uh, a lot of Australian companies the big companies are um, have really taken up sponsorship 
of women. So a male executive might always mention someone's name in conversation, really trying to explicit promote them. Promote them. Oh, so there's this report. Who would be up for that? Oh, well, Penny, she would do a good job because I saw her do that. And being actually... Um, uh, ex- uh, sort of explicitly articulating support for women to actually take on take on roles. Another thing that uh, uh, Liz Broderick talks about in terms of that sort of the the trap of presenteeism, the sense that you actually have to stay at work and be having a conversation sort of late at night, is that she really promotes the idea of uh, men leaving loudly. So that men should, when they're going off to their children's sports afternoon or parent-teacher or a sick child, they should say, I'm going now to, and that everyone hears them, so that that gives women also permission to do those things without having to feel that they have to hide it away and sneak so out. So subtle. Yeah, exactly, really exactly. So I guess it's those, there's some big things that big things that companies or ministries need to do that really uh, are policy changes. But then the cultural change comes from the day-to-day habits that you just need to unravel, the day-to-day practice that might just happen and then just kind of reinvents and reimposes itself. So there's a lot of work that people are trying to do around the cultural change as well. But there's pushback. You you, you can't create sort of a, a cultural change in these things without expecting some pushback. And that pushback doesn't necessarily only come from men, that can come from women who feel that they have had a position and now a whole lot of women are being let in and how did that happen? Interestingly, our Australian Federal Police, which has a target of having 50% women and 50% men of uniformed officers to reflect the community and to service the community properly, is doing for the very first time quite um, uh, an ambitious program of having a women-only recruitment process for uniformed members for the sort of base grade police coming in for base grade recruits. That's with some controversy, actually, to do that. But they say that their numbers are so low that unless they do something like that, that's ambitious, they won't actually ever, just by the flow through, have the numbers of women that they actually need in terms of capability. And some of that pushback's been from women already in the AFP. They would say that because it's a bit challenging when we say we're just going to we're going to have one and we're just going to recruit women. Those are really intriguing <laughs> interventions and I'm always, you know, interested to hear about the, the different experiences and the different programs that are implemented exactly. around the world because like you said earlier, when you were looking at the uh, being the global ambassador for women and girls representing Australia, it's not just about your contribution, but it's about the network and the exactly. offerings from the other nations that are, are present. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to Australia's Deputy Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Penny Williams. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Now, turning more towards a personal nature, you've built up an interesting portfolio in your career and in your current role as Deputy Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. You're responsible for 
literally the whole world, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier. But part of that, you also run um, specifically focusing on women in leadership in the organization. Could you tell us a little bit more about that particular role? So I'm the senior advocate for our women in leadership strategy, which started a couple of years ago. It was very much driven by staff who saw that we didn't have sufficient numbers of women in in our uh, leadership team. And while the numbers of our ambassadors who were women had increased, it really still wasn't where we should, ha- where we wanted it to be. So it was actually women and men within the organisation who started to ask questions. And um, our then secretary, a man, uh, was interested. And he actually became one of these male champions of change. And we had someone come externally because I I think it's quite important to have an external check on an organisation because there's issues that you can't see, that you're blind to in your culture. And they actually did quite a bit of work to unravel that. Why was it that the numbers of our graduates coming in were equally men and women, but the numbers in our senior executive team were not? Um, That something happened along the way. And as I said, for others, there was a multiple of reasons. So the department decided to set itself some stretch targets around representation of ambassadors and representation in our senior leadership team. And it's around 40-40-20, so that we would have 40% men, 40% women, and 20% variable that allows for, you know, the particular circumstances of any at any one time. Um, and so we're on our way to doing that. And one of the things that really came up was issues around caring responsibilities. So we've made quite a big effort on flexible work practices, whether that's part-time or remotely. And now we have a policy of if not, why not? If someone asks to work flexible hours, it's so the onus is on the supervisor. So we've done quite a way with that. We've rolled out unconscious bias training um, across the department for selection committees, um, but also for, for leaders. And we've developed a, a, an inclusive leadership um, uh, guidance, I suppose. I'm, I should say that we're trying to engage across the diversity of the whole department. So it's not just we, we have a women in leadership, but we also have uh, other networks and other advocates to ensure that we do have a diverse leadership group. And while we've made some very practical changes that I think in a very short time, and we've changed the conversation, foreign ministries are terribly conservative organisations and the nature of diplomacy is sort of got this terribly historic, you know, men on and horses riding into the very male dominated. So we've start, we've really changed it, but there's still a lot of cultural change. And some of the things that have been really important symbolically. So for my whole career, when I walked in where the senior executive floor, there's a row of black and white photos of white men. And it goes back, there's about 25 of them. And you kind of walk past that every day for your whole career. And certainly you think there's no place for me in this organisation. I don't look like that. <laughs> I'm not going to be that. on the wall. Exactly. So now we have a woman. We have our first secretary who is a woman. That's great. Uh, but so there were one of the ideas, and it's great, was to actually have colour photos around the department that showed women in diplomacy. So some of our ambassadors... Uh, who are women actually out there actively involved. It's really kind of just little things like that make a difference for younger people joining the organisation. The names of a whole lot of our meeting rooms are after Australian flowers, you know, the Banksia room. Uh, Now they're named after senior women in diplomacy. So those things have really demonstrated the department's symbolic 
uh, and cultural commitment to change. So I think some of the practical things like you know, increasing the number of part-time workers, increasing people being able to be flexible when they come back from maternity leave. They're actually the easy part. The most difficult part is to just change attitudes. And once again, for us, that's about the little habits, the things that come up every day. But it's really important as well to have people like me and also men at the senior level really uh, driving that change throughout our organisation. And... uh, I'm completely stunned often that this is becoming a very short time part and parcel of what we talk about, that we actually have conversations in you know, the divisions of the ministry about, oh, do we have enough women on the panel? Do we have enough this? Uh, did somebody take account of the gender? So we've got a long way to go, but we're well and truly on, on the path. We have, as part of that, I have a number of advocates as well using that uh, that same model, women and men, um, some of them from uh, the areas of our ministry where the IT area, uh, the property area where you don't have terribly many women and who may be a bit less sort of advanced in, in looking at some of these issues. So we want to bring those along as well. And, I, and my view is that, um, as I said before, this women in leadership strategy will also pull through notions of a diverse leadership. So it's not just about women. When we start to change what we look like, when we start to change the way we do things, we change it for everybody and that we have something that's opened for a broader range of people. So it's quite exciting to be involved in driving something that came from grassroots but actually leadership engaging and taking forward. And it's having a relatively big impact in a short Time exactly. Frame. It really is having a relatively big impact. And that's not to say there won't be pushback. Some, for some people, that's going to be quite challenging. If they, you know, And you can already see that perhaps people say, why did I not get promoted because I'm a man? And we have to be able to deal with those sorts of things. We can't be uh, just sort of blithely go ahead and not realise no, that cultural... pendulum could exactly. the other And way. also cultural change is complex <laughs> and it's not just a straight line, a trajectory that you get on and it will kind of you reach a certain point and it will all be okay. There's some tough issues to deal with along the way. And the reality is you're never going to satisfy exactly. everyone. Exactly. But it's, yeah. I think that transformation is something that is in, we've got to be in a continuous cycle of change. It's reading the environment. It's looking at where organisations, people, countries, economies are going exactly. forwards to and how best to adjust yourself exactly. in order to do that. So everyone is contributing in a meaningful way. Exactly. And for us as a foreign ministry, we need to, we need to reflect Australia. We need to reflect the population whom we represent. But we also need to, because the world is challenging, we need to draw on everyone as well. So it's a we need to reflect, but we also need to be drawing on the talents, a diverse range of talents to actually deal with what is this very complex world we live in where things are not as straightforward as they might once have been. Stepping away slightly from the work environment, you are also mum yes. to four children. Yes. You have an incredibly busy portfolio on a practical aspect, can you share with us some of your time management secrets and how you manage to juggle building a professional career while still maintaining your family? Yeah. So I, I, um, I'm always wary when people ask me that because I think people always kind of think, well, if she can do it, then I, what's wrong with me if I haven't done it? I so it's I about th- looking at what, what, I, what opportunities work for exactly. someone. So I had one, one guest and she said, 
My balance is um, when I fall over from doing <laughs> too much work, then I move across to the family. Other people... You exactly, know, so yeah. Just, so I... And I've kind of reflected on this quite a lot because actually I had my first child the year after I joined the ministry as a graduate and they've kind of got a big age span. I've just been off studying and doing some other things for the last year and so the last couple of years and so uh, having returned to the office this year into this deputy secretary role it's the first time I've worked when I haven't had a child in childcare or primary school and so I suddenly think I can go to work when I want I can leave when I want that's what all these other people have been doing all the time. So I've never known anything else. So that's a sort of starting point. But I suppose I've never stayed late. I've always tried to well, – I've had to. I had to pick up kids from childcare. So I've always tried to manage my time as, as um, best I could for work. So the focus has been on my work time management and making sure I'm out of the office and dealing with family. I've always had a supportive partner. I haven't had to do it all myself. Um, so I've been, and um, you, know, you let things go. And some things are work things and some things are home things. And sometimes, you know, the house is messy and sometimes, you know, things may not be as organised as at home. And there's also at work, I think that people, it's that presenteeism. I think people can fall into the trap of feeling that they have to be at work to uh, show that they're at work or that they need to deal with everything. Well, some things can survive till the next day. You just become very good at prioritisation and working out what you actually need to do. And sometimes it all just falls apart and then it just doesn't matter. <laughs> actually, it doesn't really matter at all. And sometimes you can be a bad mother and sometimes you can be a bad employee, but it all washes through. I think that women can be a bit tough on themselves. Definitely, and I think that that's part of the challenges that they are trying to be almost sometimes you get superwoman syndrome, and it's totally impractical. Yes. I think I was, uh, in one way, as I said, so I've had this time where I've always had small children, so in one way, actually having had my children quite young and working at the same time, it just meant that I've always worked. I didn't know what it was like on the other side, (laughs) so I hadn't given something up. I just always had been at work when I'd had children so that was my that was my day was kind of organised has always been organised in the same way so I've never had the shock of having to had freedom and then having it curtailed exactly well one question that I ask all my guests on this program is secrets to their success as part of the the key drivers and aspects that they think have have really helped them get to mm. where they where they are and common things always perseverance and hard work those are sort of the, the typical components um what in your opinion have been some of the key drivers to your success so i think i mean career and diplomacy is a funny one because you never know quite where you're going to be next but i do think that i've never had my heart set on anything that i had to do i never thought i have to go to paris or i have to be there and so i have just taken opportunities that sometimes look a bit odd uh and really enjoyed them and then learnt something from them and then been able to demonstrate that so um, i had a posting to syria 
um, I actually originally was posted as a third secretary to Kingston, Jamaica, and I thought I'd just be hanging out with the Australian cricketers all the time. And we closed the post, and I was given Syria. Uh, and I loved it, and it was fantastic, and it really gave me... It was so challenging and interesting. And uh, I was posted to Chile. I never imagined to be posted to Chile and to be learning Spanish. And the same thing. I keep waiting for that thing that I take and I won't love. I ran the passport office, and people thought that was a very odd choice, but I just liked the idea of doing something quite sort of practical and intangible in contrast to, to diplomacy. So for me, it's been a willingness to give it a go. That's very Australian, isn't it? I'll give it a go. Um, uh, you know, not had my heart set on anything and then really just seized the job and had fun doing it. And what would you say have been some of the pivotal moments in your life that have shaped you or events that have really made you who you are today? Um, so I'm from Tasmania. So Tasmanians are kind of a funny breed in Australia because we're island people. So it's very sort of strong culturally for me being from Tasmania. But I went to, I had two things that really changed for me. I was an exchange student to Indonesia um, when I was 16. So I went and lived, and in those days Indonesia just seemed forever away. Um, And so I lived with an Indonesian family for a year. A year? Uh, Yes. Wow, that's a long long period. (laughs) And so then I I decided to study Indonesian, and I guess that led to me joining the foreign ministry. So I left uh, Tasmania to go to university on the mainland, as we say, um, to Canberra to study Indonesian, Indonesian studies. So that, I guess, would be one of those kind of big shifts that you, when you look back and you think, well, that was something that I did that really impacted me and, and had made me interested in the world and language and seeing things through other people's eyes and that really did lead me into joining um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And have there been any particularly strong women in your life that have had an impact on you? So having said that um, we don't have the number of women ambassadors we should have, I actually in my first two postings had women ambassadors. So my first ambassador in Damascus was a woman, so that's pretty interesting to see how she operated in that. And we were uh, accredited to to Lebanon as well then because of the war. And she was a very strong, feisty person who kind of uh, used her her gender in a a very creative ways in the Middle East. Like she was very, she was very tough. And then I was posted to, to Chile, to Santiago, and I had a woman ambassador. So really great to have strong mm. role models. So I guess at that sort of level, when I was more it didn't cross my mind that you couldn't be an ambassador because I had to. So they've been quite important to me in career terms. But I suppose getting back to our earlier conversation, the women uh, working in the Pacific who work in women's organisations, who are doing the hard work, the grassroots women who deal with the consequences of violence... Um, in terms of the people who they work with, but who are also so resilient in coming up with policy responses and trying to push things through. Just absolutely amazing. So um, they're just role model, they're inspirational, yes. And lastly, as we close the show out today, could you share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to younger women who are listening to us? 
I suppose that some of the things that I guess have come through the conversation that we've had today is that don't be too hard on yourself. Um, don't think that everybody's doing a perfect job. Don't think every senior woman is doing a perfect job. Um, people make mistakes as they go along, and that's absolutely okay. So you don't have to be a superwoman or a wonder woman. And But at the same time, if you see an opportunity, absolutely grab it and make the most of it. Um, and really drive it forward, and you, you know, hopefully those things come come together. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed having you on the show today. Uh, your passion, your enthusiasm, and for sharing some really interesting intervention mechanisms in terms of how to shift gender thinking, and with a strong emphasis on culture. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to Australia's Deputy Secretary from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Penny Williams.